Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. I'm your host each week now in our six year 300 plus podcast that Franklin Covey has produced and distributed worldwide to become the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. You know, when we started this six years ago, we mainly were interviewing our own thought leaders around core leadership topics, productivity and time management, the the, the disciplines of executing strategy in your organization, how to build a high trust culture, you know, core topics we think of when we think of becoming a leader and modeling leadership principles that our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey taught in his seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The Franklin Covey Company has now become the world's most trusted leadership firm, and 300-plus episodes later, we very deliberately decided to live one of his intentional values, which is to have an abundance mindset, an abundance mentality. And so we very much like each week to shine the light and power of this podcast on people that we think complement Franklin Covey's expertise in the marketplace. And today, we're going to have a very core leadership conversation about performance, not just high performance, but what does beyond high performance look like, sound like, and feel like, not just for those that we hire and hope to retain their talent in our company, but for us as entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs, as leaders at all levels. Today, our guest is the coach and leadership expert, Jason Jaggard, on his newest release, Beyond High Performance, what great coaches know about how the best get better. Jason, welcome to On Leadership. Oh, thanks, Scott. Love to be on the show, and I'm a huge fan of Franklin Covey, so thanks for having me. And mine in particular, I understand from you saying off air. <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah, it goes without saying. Whatever, Scott, too welcome. late, Jason. Jason, <laughs> we invited you back today because you and I have become friends Really from our first interview, where about 15 feet over on that side of the studio several months ago, we chased you and interviewed you for Franklin Covey's other weekly podcast called C-Suite Conversations that comes out on Thursdays. This podcast on leadership airs on Tuesdays and Fridays. They are both audio and video. When I finished interviewing you, I was actually kind of had a bit of a, a leadership crush on you because of the depth and knowledge of your many decades focused on coaching and leadership and culture strategy, specifically your most recent book about Beyond High Performance. Rewind a couple of decades and, if you will, reacclimatize our listeners and viewers worldwide to your journey and how you came to focus your time on this book, Beyond High Performance. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for asking. And also, just to plug, I love your book. We had you on our podcast as well, your book on mentoring. Uh, still, people talk to me about that episode, and many people have bought that book too. And so, um, it's really fun. I, got, I have a leadership crush. Is that the phrase you used? Is that, are we? Keep going, to- keep going, keep going. <laughs> now you're okay. making me feel a little awkward. It's getting creepy, Jason. <laughs> we can just gaze into each other's eyes. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I mean, uh, I was raised. Honestly, where I first started learning about uh, leadership is not where I think most people would think of it, and which was like at church. And uh, so I, that was the first place where I was taught about the idea of leadership. And I was taught that I could be a leader or was a leader, you know, just as a, as a little guy that, um, you know, how I was influencing classes or, or Sunday school or whatever. And so then I was raised in a really positive, and I talk about this in the book. This, the book's not a religious book, but it, it does honestly tell my journey into leadership where, you know, it, Mariah Carey learned to sing at church. Britney Spears learned to sing at church. Katy Perry uh, learned to sing at church. You know, there's the church is this weird environment where every seven days there's this explosion of an event, and it's a great place to get your reps in 
caring about other people, believing in other people. And then I got to be a part, I got to be a pastor in my twenties and I got to be a pastor at an amazing church uh, called Mosaic in Los Angeles. And Earl McManus was my boss and uh, he's got multiple best-selling books and our community worked with um, some of the most creative people on the planet. And that's where I really fell in love with the idea of consulting and coaching and development. And so then uh, I had a conversation with him after a few years and said, hey, if I transition off of staff, I think that I can still contribute and participate in the community, but you, you, know, you don't have to pay me and I can start investing in leaders full time. And that was 10 years ago, uh, started an executive coaching firm and have been doing that ever since. And now our firm has hundreds of clients and we work with professional athletes, um, people running multi-billion dollar companies. We work with some of the most famous entertainers on earth. And it's, uh, it's one of those pinch me things. Like I really love my job. I love working with coaches and our coaches love working with our clients. Jason, seems like a mundane, but I think vital question. The book you've just released is called Beyond High Performance. We'll yeah. talk about that. The tagline says what great coaches know about how the best get better. So what do the best coaches know about this topic? Well, one is just identifying the problem, right? So and uh, in, in the book, I tell the story about how I was doing some informal consulting with a Fortune 10 company, and, and uh, we're talking and getting to know each other. And I say, so what's the problem? And what they said to me shocked me. Uh, they said, well, Jason, we have a, a company full of high performers. And I had heard that explained as a solution to things. I'd heard that explained only in terms of the good things as years ago. Uh, but I never heard them articulate that as a problem or anyone, really. And so I was like, so what does that mean? And they began to describe to me what... Uh, I had heard many people say over the years, but it's never articulated as a, as a high performance problem, which is, you know, we have people who are resistant to feedback. We have people who kind of perceive themselves as divas, people who've arrived, people who, you know, it's a Fortune 10 company. So they see themselves as the best in the world. And in many ways, they are and were the best in the world. And when you create a team full of high performers, that creates a series of predictable problems. And a lot of leaders uh, who lead high performing teams, and if you're listening to this, you're probably one of them. Uh, you, you don't necessarily have a lot of help on what do I do once I've already won that game of getting a great team uh, together. And so what we do, we, we coined a term called meta performance and meta performance is what comes after high performance. And it is the constant reinvention of what high performance is for you. And uh, when people, when high performers begin realizing that high performance isn't the summit, that it's actually summitless, then you can create a, a company culture of meta performance and then all sorts of, of amazing things begin to happen. You write about Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, that that's, this, we've heard a lot in the last decade around having a growth mindset, whether it be about parenting or about leaders. And I think you probably would argue that a lot of diva leaders, which I bet I was one at some point in my C-suite career, not a Fortune 5, but at the Franklin Covey Company, that I'll bet I would have always thought I had a growth mindset when often I didn't. Talk about... Uh, the idea of a growth mindset, what does that mean? And how can that be yeah. even deleterious to someone becoming a meta performer? Yeah, so I love Carol's work. And actually what a lot of people don't know is her work was initially targeted towards children and only children. And so other people have extrapolated that towards adults. And she actually wrote this article in The Atlantic, which I highly recommend, maybe, maybe we could put it in the show notes, where she bemoans how the idea and the vernacular of growth mindset has, has been used and misused in company cultures. And so she, she discovered that most people started using the word growth mindset to mean like whether or not a person perceived themselves to have grown, like past tense. Oh, this person has grown a lot in their life, therefore they must have a growth mindset. And what, what she discovered and what we discovered in working with our clients is you really, you don't have a growth mindset just because you've grown. And you don't even have a growth mindset just because you're growing. 
that you, you have a growth mindset based on the intentional activities you are doing on a given weekly basis to actually grow in some specific way to hit some kind of specific goal. So it's a lot more um, surgical and it has a lot to do with the way that you perceive yourself and are you able to grow and then executing that in some kind of tangible way during the week. And, and frankly, very few people have that. Most people feel like they're growing. Most people have goals that they're trying to achieve, but that's not the same thing as developing a certain skill or growing in some certain specific capacity to help you achieve that goal. Jason, other than my stint working in you know the service industry in high school and college, my entire three plus decade career has been dedicated to this leadership development industry. And I would argue, at least I'm the host, so I can share my point of view, I think the most important role a leader plays actually is not mission, vision, and values, although very important roles. And it's yeah, not systems, structures, and strategies, all very important roles. I think the most important role a leader plays is recruiting and retaining talent. It's mm. being a talent magnet, it's identifying the right people to come into your organization. In fact, those people who are noticeably, palpably more talented than even you are, and exercising yes. the maturity and the humility necessary to even have them eclipse you, to be comfortable yeah. hiring people who are noticeably smarter than you are. This requires you to become a very competent identifier of talent. It requires you also to be a great interviewer and look for meta performers. You talk about four questions that you ask during the screening process and even the training process. I'm gonna pitch each of the four of these and ask you to riff on them if you don't mind. Yeah. Here are four questions you ask during screening and while training for meta performance. Number one, what's your vision for how you're going to go above and beyond what we're asking of you in this current role? And then you notice if they get excited or confused or defensive. What are you gonna to do to grow beyond what we're even gonna ask you? Riff on that. Yeah, well, I th first of all, thank you for pointing that part of the book out. You're the first interviewer uh, of all the podcasts to point that chapter out, and that did you is say one of my Did you say best interviewer? Oh, first, I heard you are the You're the, you're the, <laughs> you're the best interviewer ever mm -hmm. in the history of interviewers. Um, well, and one tweak to what you said as an introduction to that question. One is, I, I do obviously it's important to uh, be a talent magnet. I think equally important is being a mindset magnet. And so a lot of interviewers know how to test for talent and screen for talent, but very few interviewers are thinking about how do you screen or test for mindset. And that's what these questions are designed to do. So the first question that is in the book that you just referenced is, hey, look, it's, the assumption is we're not hiring you just to do the job as it currently is. Because if you're anything like the people that we're hiring, like our company is growing. Franklin Covey is growing. If you're listening to this, your company is probably growing. And if it's not growing, you're hoping that it will grow because you're hiring certain people. And so, you know, when you're interviewing someone, you, you need to take that growth trajectory into account, not only to say, hey, look, what are you, what, what are we hiring you to do because of the skills that you already have, but what skills will you need to develop in order to accomplish something new in this company as it grows? And, and that's what I think retains people over time is when uh, people are able to grow with the company, because the reality is, Scott, like uh, companies are easier to scale than people are. Actually, companies grow a lot faster than people do. And so you have to be really intentional in hiring people who want to grow along with the company versus just do the thing that you hired them to do in the first place. Jason, the second question you suggest we ask is, in what way do you think you'll need to grow in order to stay with us in this current role a year from now? And you say with this question, it's okay that they wrestle with it. You're really testing for how they think creatively about their own growth. 
Yeah, and that kind of riffs off of the, the thing that I just mentioned is, you know, imagine imagine it's a year from now, and this is where we expect this company to be. You know, like I was just putting together uh, an organizational chart for where our company is going to be in five years. And so you can see like where the holes are, where the gaps are for talent and everything like that. And so you want to ask people, hey, like, so this is what the company is going to look like. How would you need to grow in your job in order to find a place in the future company, not just in the present company? Your third question is you ask, uh, what's your plan for making sure that you grow in that specific way? You just told me how you plan to grow. What's your plan for that growth? And the same as you're really looking for, you know, how they think and wrestle with it and get frustrated. Tell me, do you have any advice on the best way to answer this question? I mean, if I was posed with this question, I would certainly be authentic and say, I'm not sure I've thought about that, or I can, I can show you all the things I do on a daily basis in terms of you know my conference attending and who I friend up to and how I stretch myself. And I would think of natural things. I'm not sure I have a, a deliberate plan on how to grow with a career or even catch up to a company's growth. Yeah, I appreciate you framing it that way. <clears throat> I, so there's two parts to this, Scott. Like The first is, uh, the question isn't necessarily about getting the right answer. The question, in some ways, frames expectations of what they can what they can expect by being at this company. So when you ask that question, they're going to wrestle with it, and they may fumble with it. They may not have a good answer. But then when you when you hire them, let's say you decide to hire them anyway, now they expect to be put on some kind of growth improvement plan. And I think I talk about this in this chapter. We talk about how, like in a meta performing company, everybody is on a performance improvement plan all the time. You know, most companies use PIPs. Uh, as a disciplinary measure, you know, like you put someone on a performance improvement plan when they're not doing well, uh, a meta performance company, like why would you wait for someone to struggle before you help them grow? Like a meta performer wants to grow all the time. Like in our firm, every, now we're a coaching company, right? So like we can do this, but every coach in our firm has a coach. Everybody in our company is on a performance improvement plan from me to everyone else. And uh, that's, to me, that, that that's what creates a magnet, a mindset magnet for the right kind of people because the right kind of people don't want to get a job just to, just to do the job. They may love the job, but that can't be the only reason why they're here. They have to, they, they, in order to create a meta-performance culture, you want people here so that they can grow into something new, not just to do the thing that you already hired them to do. Jason, in my three decades, I've never heard someone say that. I think it's profound. I think this idea that everyone has a performance improvement plan in place, not as a you know, do this or leave, but as a reason why we want you to stay here and grow your own skills. At Franklin Covey, we have something called win-win agreements. And it's kind of like that. But what you're yeah. suggesting is a little bit different. Let's take a moment and step out of these four questions. I'll come back to number four in a moment, although it kind of is just a capstone question. What advice would you give to the leaders who are listening and watching right now who might be riveted like I am with the idea of every employee should have a performance improvement plan contrary to the typical connotation of that. What does that look like and sound like? What are some ways to set that up and hold people accountable in a motivating, positive way to sort of disassociate from the negative connotation that comes with PIPs? Yeah, well, step one is you don't have to call it a PIP. You don't have to call it a PIP. Uh, who cares what you call it? It's not really the title that matters. It's the philosophy and the, uh, the rhythms and rituals that matter. You know, so as an example, is really what we're talking about, Scott, is creating a, co a coaching culture with your management team. And, and of course, you know, our company is part of what we do. Like we come in and we work with companies to help them create, you know, meta performance management cultures. And here's a really tangible example. So uh, instead of doing like annual reviews, you want to do annual previews. 
right? Where we're talking not about the past, but we're talking about the future. Okay, so, hey, this is what we expect to happen in the next year. Like, what are your dreams for contribution at this company? And how would you need to grow in order to have that kind of contribution? And I'll give you like an easy example. I was talking to someone on our team uh, who their dream was, and we, we get really clear about what people around here, what, they, what they're up to and how they want to grow in the company, what their dreams would be in the company. Their dream was to be the CEO someday. They wanted my job. And, you know, I could get defensive by that. I could get, you know, upset about that or whatever, but I'm like, awesome. So then I'm going to start giving you feedback uh, that's going to help you become CEO faster, if it's going to happen at all. And, you know, it's a win-win for me because they're going to grow faster and then maybe they become CEO. But if they don't, either way, I got a more, um, you know, powerful person in the organization who's grown their capacities. And then, you know, let's say they were to transition out, they're better prepared in the marketplace uh, you know, to be, maybe be the CEO someplace else or whatever. So it's everybody wins through the Stephen Covey principle. And a lot of this, by the way, is the other Stephen Covey principle, which is start with the end in mind, right? So we're starting with their growth trajectory as a vision and then reverse engineering that. And then that's, so I started giving this person, you know, feedback based on the, you know, frankly, massive gaps that were standing between where they were now, which is like a middle manager in the company and being CEO someday. And it, it was great for a while. And then finally they were like, hey, this is like really uncomfortable and painful. I changed my mind. Like, I don't want to be CEO anymore. And I was like, okay, <laughs> like, no problem. And if you ever change your mind back, then we can start, at, you, know, you know, get back on that path. Uh, but it really, it gives, what's fun about it is it, it invites a team member, an employee or a colleague to imagine a future in the company that both of you are up for, that would be a win-win. And then you start just having intentional conversations and giving feedback to help them develop into that kind of person. And either way, even the person who tapped out, like the story that I just told, they still got extra development. They still got, and they got clear on what was necessary and required of being a CEO, at least here. And that was helpful information for them for, to realize maybe I don't want that. And then they can get a new vision that actually is worth whatever it is they're up to. And so, so it's a really beautiful process where you just have intentional conversations around people's futures versus their past. And they start giving them feedback on how to close those gaps. Beautifully said, as an expert from many vantage points in coaching, I'm guessing this is a rarity, not the norm. When I think of coaching inside of an organization, I usually think of one of two types of scenarios. One is it's kind of punitive in that you've had some kind of human resource infraction and we're gonna give you a new chance, but you need to go get some coaching on this and if you don't improve, you're gonna be out. That happens yeah. a lot. Yep. The other is high performance, high growth. We're thinking about moving you into the C-suite. We're thinking about having you join the executive team, but you need some coaching on either your interpersonal skills or on some business acumen stuff, so we're gonna invest in a coach for you. But my guess is that's the bell curve and that the vast majority of people and organizations receive no coaching other than that they right. do from their leader who may or may not be qualified to coach them properly on their own career journey. What advice do you give to companies that obviously can't afford to coach, to, uh, at a coach to every you know, line contributor? What's, what, what's a actionable middle ground that people can build a coaching culture without going bankrupt over it? Yeah, well, let me, let me pause here just for a second and talk about the, the questions that drive performance. And so every, everybody's uh, performance is shaped by the questions they ask and the questions they don't ask. And we talk about this, I think, in the introduction or chapter one or two of the book. And so then we talk about the performance pyramid and how there's low performers, performers, and high performers. And usually you perform based on the questions you're asking, like low performers are asking, what's the least amount of work I can do and not get caught or keep my job? Performers are asking, how can I be a, do a good job? And then high performers are asking the question, how can I be the best? And so then when we introduce meta performance, we, ask, we introduce a different kind of question. And the question that meta performers are asking, they're not asking, how can I obviously do the least I can do and still have my job? They're not asking, how can I do a good job? 
they're not even asking how can I be the best because, you know, if you're a salesperson in a company, you can be the number one salesperson. And then like a Thanksgiving turkey, you're done. Like, you know, now what? Uh, meta performers ask a fundamentally different kind of question. And they ask the question, what are we capable of? Or what am I capable of? So when you're in a company, you want to be asking yourself the question, what am I capable of in terms of creating value for this company? And by the way, Scott, any employee, I don't care where you are in an organization, if you show up to work every day thinking, how can I grow my capacity to add value here? You will always have a job until you don't want a job anymore. Mm -hmm. That person will always, always, always be valuable because they're always trying to grow their value. Now, that being said, the reason why I mentioned that uh, with your question is one of the simplest things a company can do who, who wants to kind of dip their toes in this without necessarily making a huge investment in like in Franklin Covey stuff or in like Novus Global stuff or whatever is to just begin intentionally asking a different set of questions, both to yourself and with your team. And so, you know, I mean, the easy thing would be buy this book for your team and then talk about it. In fact, one of my favorite things, Scott, about this book is at the back of every chapter, there's a little QR code. And if you scan it, we actually did a book club. Our coaches in our firm did a book club and we recorded all of it. And then we chopped up the best parts and made it a free resource to the people who, who buy the book. And it's one of my favorite things. I like watched it uh, when it came out and I was so thrilled to watch our coaches modeling how we dialogue about the concepts, both in our personal lives, our professional lives, and with our clients. And you know that's a fantastic place to start if uh, people are interested in exploring this in a cost-effective way. The fourth question I want to just get out is that you ask to, to screen for people whether or not they can be meta performers, if you will, is how did you grow in your ability to add value in your last job? I don't think there's need to unpack that, but I wanted to finish that concept. You also place emphasis on leaders who want to build a high performance culture beyond such, meta performance. Arguably the most important thing they can do is model that in themselves, right? Is to become That's a right. meta performer themselves. Seems obvious. It's why not everyone should be a leader of people because the criteria for leading requires you to model everything you want to see in your team. If yeah. you want them to be punctual, you must be punctual. If you want them to offer apologies, you have to offer apologies. If you want them to stop gossiping, you can never gossip. And on and on and on. Dr. Covey yes. would have called it be a light, not a judge, be a model, not a critic. Why don't you send us off today with some thoughts around what are the skills and behaviors that you need meta-performing leaders to be modeling every day? It might be the routine, it might be the word choice they use, it might be the resources. Take as long as you'd like on this, because I want everyone to kind of lean in right now, the next three or four minutes, as Jason talks around how you become a meta-performer model to build that culture in your company. Jason, riff as long as you'd like. Yeah, well, so in the book, we talk about the six elements of a meta-performance culture. And it's an acronym, Go Live, and it stands for growth, ownership, love, integrity, vision, and energy. And so when I think about my own leadership and when we work with clients and, and for those people who get excited about that idea from the book, we're really talking about how do you model those six things. And so let me just briefly walk through each of those. Um, so like with, with growth, you know, we really believe that the deepest satisfaction and progress, uh, the deepest satisfaction in, in work doesn't come from necessarily success. It comes from the feeling that you're growing. Uh, everyone knows what it's like to be tired and everyone knows what it's like to be a little burned out. And what's interesting is the research has shown that when you're burnt out, most people think what they need is a break or rest. And, and they should do that. You should take breaks and rest every now and then. Uh, but, but what they discovered is actually what you don't need most uh, isn't, isn't rest. You need a sense of progress, a sense of move forward movement. And so, uh, you know, just from my own life, uh, I remember 
my, my, I know that my, my coaches, my coaches, the coaches who are part of our community, um, they're paying attention to me and whether or not I'm investing in myself, right? So I think in the last chapter, I talked about how I hired a coach named Steve Hardison. He's one of the best coaches in the world. And there's, by the way, there's tons of great coaches out there, not just in our firm. Uh, you know, Franklin Covey's got great coaches and, I, and we'll get to that in a second in terms of just, you know, whether a, a bad coach in some ways is better than no coach. There's caveats to that, obviously, but um, my coaches, our coaches, watch me to see if I'm investing in myself. And if you're listening to this, whether it's mentors, whether it's uh, you know, your board, or whether it's hiring a coach, and by the way, it's not just hiring a coach, it's talking about what you're learning from your coaching with your team. You know, so I would actually have, when I, when I was flying to Phoenix twice a month to meet with Steve, I would actually have coaches come with me and they wouldn't be in the session with me, but they would actually meet me in the Phoenix airport and we would talk about like how I'm preparing for the session. And then we, I'd have my session with Steve. And then afterwards, we, you know, I want it to be fresh. I would unpack it with people who would join me um, for the trip. And then I would come home and like update the company of things that I'm learning and things that I'm growing in. And you know, we're, again, we're a coaching company. And so that makes more sense for us. But man, if you're a leader and you're getting leadership coaching, you have to be talking about the books you're reading, the, uh, the, the, the people you're hiring to invest in you, the, the ways that you're intentionally trying to grow. And that is a fantastic way to then encourage them to grow as well. And then when you hire a coach for them, they won't see it as punitive. You know, in my, in my world, uh, you don't get a coach because something's in trouble or, or you're, you're doing something wrong. You, you get a coach like as a gift, as a benefit, as an incentive, you know, like as a, hey, if you, if you really want to win here, we'll give you a coach. And it's like, it's like oh, goody, like I, I won the evidence that I'm doing something right around here is that someone hired a coach for me as a value add to my life. So that's growth. And I'll go through these a little faster. You know, then there's ownership. And what we say in, in the book on ownership is, you know, radical ownership beats blame. And so, and by the way, this, Scott, this is probably one of the hardest ones for me. Uh, there's a, a, a saying we say at the firm that when you, when you turn on your followers, you, you've abdicated your right to lead. And, you know, so when I find myself getting frustrated with people on the team or when I find myself criticizing them or, you know, uh, triangulating feedback, you know, or whatever, uh, then I'm, then I'm really in a blame zone and not an ownership zone, which, you know, leads to the next one, which is love. And this is another one of my favorite chapters in the book. We define love as fierce advocacy. And so there's a, a really simple exercise that we, that we borrowed with permission from a guy named Jeff Henderson, who wrote a book called uh, four and it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend that too. And in it, it talks about, you know, most of the time when you're leading, you know, what you want from people, uh, but being a leader of love means getting really attached to what you want for people, not just what you want from people. And so I actually do an exercise sometimes when I'm frustrated with some of my team and I write down, what are the, what are the things I want for this person? Well, I want them to be, even though I'm ticked that they didn't respond to my email or maybe they're causing problems in another department or something like I want them to be successful. I want them to be happy. I want them to grow in their character. I want them to have a great life. I want them to have a great family. You know, I, I know what their dreams are. I want them to, and once you get attached to that, then you can have the same kind of conversation. Hey man, uh, you know, this isn't quite working, but you're, you're coming from an, a way of being that says, but I'm for you, even though this isn't quite working and we're not in alignment right now, I'm still for you as a person. And it makes conflict a lot easier. And it's a huge performance enhancing drug. Love is probably one of the best performance enhancing drugs. Uh, then there's integrity. And we define integrity just as do what you say you're going to do when you're going to do it. And this is a, a huge one for us too. And again, from my own example, uh, I noticed that my uh, chief of staff, Shannon, was putting things on my calendar for me to do. And I, would, I was batting like a 90%, but, but we want to bat a 100% in our firm that I do what I say I'm going to do when I'm going to do it. 
And a few times I'd broken my commitment to her. And so we slowed down and we actually had a meeting where uh, we got curious around what's going on with me where I detach my calendar or I, I feel like I don't have to do things, even if they're on the calendar, I have to do them if I don't want to do them. Or was, you know, she was like asking me, like, are you getting overwhelmed or is it a bandwidth issue? Because what we say in the firm is that a broken commitment is a cry for help. And we wrote that whole article, or sorry, the whole chapter on integrity to help people figure out how to begin building cultures of integrity and modeling it themselves. Then the last two is vision. And we've already talked a little bit about that. You know, is uh, it's really easy. It's actually crazy how, how easy it is for executive leaders to drift into the everyday stuff and detach from the exciting, you know, nuclear fission, white heart, white hot, you know, loving, exciting vision of a company, like why you got into it in the first place. You know, even at our company, we get to change people's lives. You know, what, what, what Franklin Covey does, you know, the coaching world and the leadership development world is such a romantic world where we get to actually walk with people as they make not only professional changes, but you know, their, their families change, like legacy changes, the wealth they create and the success they have. And when we work with companies, like the bonuses that people get, and it's just so exciting. Uh, and it's really easy to detach from that. And it's really easy to detach from the, the romantic part of the vision versus kind of the nuts and bolts shareholder version of the vision, bottom line version of the vision. And, uh, you know, so when I get on calls these days, one of the things I'm thinking of and meetings, because everything, all, our company's all remote, is, you know, am I, uh, am I carrying the vision? Am I being a, a person of excitement and optimism and hope for the future versus problem solving and critique and blame and judging? And then the last one is energy. And, uh, you know, one of the things we say at the firm is uh, uh, tend to the fire, bring the heat and have fun. And so... You know, one of the things I try to model, so one time during the pandemic, actually, um, petting zoos had closed down, which is among not the worst things that was happening during the pandemic. But, you know, the petting zoos had closed down. They're looking for revenue options. And so what you could do is you could hire a llama to drop in on your Zoom meetings. And so I'm always looking for ways of bringing uh, some enjoyment during hard times or, you know, having a little bit of fun, a little bit of play uh, at work. In fact, I just read a thing that said um, it takes you 400 reps of something to build a neural synapse for like a new idea in your mind. But if you're having fun while you're doing it, it only takes 20. And so it's really important to like bring your own energy and to manage your own energy. And so, uh, so I, uh, during the pandemic, we were on a zoom call with our whole company and everyone hopped on. And then there, there was this llama and like a party hat. <laughs> and at first people were like, what is a llama doing on this call? Uh, and then all of a sudden everyone started relaxing and, and having fun. And we were able to have very serious conversations around, very serious things that are happening in our own lives with people's health and with our company's lives as we were walking with them through a horrible challenge. But we're also able to just smile a little bit and be grateful to be alive and then to leverage that energy to create more good in the world. And so if you can help companies and if you can begin modeling for yourself, growing, taking responsibility, being an advocate for people with love, uh, growing in your integrity, casting a compelling vision and bringing the energy, then you've, you've and managing the tension of all those things, you've really set yourself up uh, for success. And if you can create a culture that is doing all those things, then you start seeing, and we, t we tell stories in the book. We actually got criticized for telling a lot of stories in the book of companies that we worked with and clients and things. Um, but then you get to see what, how the magic really starts to open up. And that's really what we want for people. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, I just appreciate you bringing to the national conversation the plight of petting zoos during the pandemic. That's something that was personally <laughs> yeah, traumatic a, for me. It's a scandal. It I was, know everyone was really upset well, about it. Well, it was just, it, it's important that they also understand we're glad they're back. Jason, <laughs> um, close us out. Clo yeah. <laughs> Haven't been to a petting zoo in a while. Um, <laughs> uh <-huh. Yep. laughs> close us out. 
about the best way for leaders to read this book with their teams. You mentioned earlier at the end of each chapter, there is a QR code with discussion guides and some videos. Uh, if a leader is listening to this and they're liking what they hear, and they think, yeah. I want to find a way to develop a meta culture, first by modeling it myself, next by asking great questions, putting everybody yeah. on a pip or whatever the name of that is. Talk right. about how someone buys this book for their leaders and facilitates a book club while using the resources at the end of each chapter. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. One is we have coaches in our firm who'd be happy to facilitate a book club. Uh, so you can reach out to us about that. Uh, maybe if you just email me, jason at novus.global, uh, or reach out on our website or whatever. The book has ways of contacting us. So we'd be happy to facilitate that for you. That's no problem. Um, and also, just to say this too, if you're wondering if your company would, would resonate with this, um, with the book, you know, at the beginning of the book, we talk about how every person, and I, by the way, Scott, I love this about you. I love seeing how you're continually growing. You know, like when I got to interview you on our podcast, we talked about your history and how you're always like planning for the next position, the next career, the next season of your influence and impact. And I just love, you know, that's one of the reasons why we had you on the show is because you're a model of this in so many ways. And, and I love that and respect you for that. And uh, so I, I know this is true of you, which is every person, every leader I know, and every employee I know has this sense that they're supposed to do something meaningful with their lives. They have this sense that they have mm -hmm. more to mm -hmm. offer. And then simultaneously, they have this sense that uh, it's a little scary to think about what it might look like to excavate that from themselves because they're already really busy. They're, always, they're already overwhelmed. And that's what's interesting about people is even when they're overwhelmed, they still have this sense or, or burnt out or their calendar's full or the, you know, they've got five kids or whatever. They still have this sense that they are capable of more. And so the question is, is how do you honor that? How do you help people and give them tools to burn bright without burning out? And that's why we wrote the book is because we really believe that, that uh, work is sacred that you, you know, you're going to, the Rancorp said that, uh, did a study that said that on average, everyone's going to spend about a hundred thousand hours working. And that can either be really depressing or it could be like really exciting because work is a place where you get to practice becoming a certain kind of person. You know, every, every meeting you lead, every, every, uh, form you fill out, every time you do a sales call, every time you, you lead some kind of management opportunity or give people feedback, you're practicing becoming an extraordinary person. And that not only impacts your profession, but it impacts your private life. And one last story, Scott, is, um, you know, I was doing some work with a multi-billion dollar company in Midtown Manhattan. A bunch of our coaches had done work with them over the last couple of years. And they had an amazing year. So they're throwing this big party and they've gotten these big bonuses and everything had gone well. And so they flew me in to speak at their, their uh, event. And, you know, it's around New Year's Eve. And so it's New York, Manhattan, Rockefeller, uh, big band, champagne popping, all this kind of stuff. And this, this real estate guy walks up to me during the party, huge guy, intimidating guy. And, uh, you know, wraps his arms around me, gives me a huge hug. And, and he says, Hey, I just want to thank you for, uh, the work. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he had worked with one of our coaches and about with around the concepts in the book. And, and he goes, well, you know, uh, in my, in my family, he's married, he's got a daughter. He said, my daughter's going through adolescence and all like the tricks that, uh, my wife has used over the last 13, 14 years aren't working anymore. And so we need a new like tricks, new tools to navigate, uh, our relationship with our daughter. And he goes, Jason, I've been taking all the things that I'm learning uh, with this book and applying it to my family. And now he has a relationship with his daughter that he never thought he'd be able to have. And he shook my hand and he said, uh, I didn't know I could do that. You know, and, uh, you know, Scott, like we want people to have as many, I didn't know I could do that as possible in their lives. That's what makes life uh, valuable and meaningful. 
is to continue to explore what they're capable of. And uh, I just want to thank you for, for having me on the show to talk about how that's possible. And, and we hope that the book helps people make that possible in their own lives and leadership. Burn bright without burning out. That is now seared into my psyche that I'll be thinking about this fall. Jason Jagger, the author of numerous books and articles, one of the world's most renowned entrepreneurs, coaches, and leadership experts. Your most recent release is Beyond High Performance, What Great Coaches Know About How the Best Get Better. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Leadership.